The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. This morning, if you'll turn back to the 16th chapter of Mark, we're going to go back to the topic of the resurrection. We started out this book some 40-something sermons ago with a declaration that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And it says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, now, the gospel simply means the good news. So why is it good news? What is it about Jesus Christ that is good news? Well, first of all, it's good news that He is the Son of God. If He were not the Son of God, this would just be a tragic tale. This would be a fictional account of some a uh, person that lived or maybe didn't live way back in the day. It might be interesting to us, but it wouldn't be very helpful to us. But if he is indeed who he says he is, if he is indeed the Son of God, we are finally to the point of understanding why that's important and why that's good news. Because up to the 16th chapter, we've seen... Uh, lots of times when Jesus would be teaching truths that were very important and would be misunderstood, he would be teaching things that were very important for us to know and for his disciples to know, and others would reject them. He, we, we see where he was rejected of the authorities, the chief priests and the scribes, and ultimately rejected by the Romans themselves who had him crucified at the insistence of the Jewish leaders. And up to the 16th chapter, it's just a tale like any other historical tale that we have read. But the 16th chapter of Mark brings us something new. The 16th chapter introduces something that has never happened in the history of this universe. The 16th chapter tells us, starts off telling us about three women who went to the tomb where they had laid Jesus. And we talked about that a little bit last time. They went there sad. They went there in despair they went there expecting first of all not to have any success in their mission they said we're going here to anoint his body but there's this huge stone in front of his tomb who's going to roll it away for us they didn't really expect to be able to do what they came there to do but then when they got there and the stone was rolled away if, if they could get it rolled away they were going to they were just going to go in there and anoint a dead body with with spices and perfumes to mask the natural effects of, of death. But when they got there, they found that the stone had been rolled away. And they found that as the young man that they saw said, uh, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. And in another account, he also, uh, the angel tells them, he is, uh, why, asks them the question, why seek ye the living among the dead? <laughs> you know, that's something we do, isn't it? We seek the living among the dead. We seek, we seek life in this world among dead works. We seek life in this world uh, among dead people. We, we're dead in trespasses and in sins. The religious world tells us that a dead man can do something to become alive. We're seeking life among the dead. Beloved, the only life we can ever get comes from above, not from below, you see. And, and even after we're born again, sometimes do we not seek life where we can't find life? 
out there in the world, you're not going to find the life. Jesus said, I've come that they might have life. But he didn't just stop there, but they also that they might have it more abundantly. Every single child of God, every person who's been born of the Spirit, and, and, and you say, well, have I been born of the Spirit? Have you ever felt the tender heart toward God? Have you ever been, you know, some people come to me and say, I'm so concerned that I may die and go to hell. I'm, I'm convicted over what a sinner I am. I'm so concerned. What can I do uh, to be saved? Well, if you're talking about what can I do to be eternally saved, then I've got good news for you. You've already been eternally saved. If you didn't have, you wouldn't have that desire. You wouldn't have that concern if you didn't, if you hadn't already been born of the Spirit because a dead man feels nothing in the realm to which he's dead. But there are those that have been born of the Spirit, those who are children of God, <coughs> who are still seeking life, the abundant life, in a place of death. Why seek ye the living among the dead? Life is only found in Christ and in a close walk with Him. But they go to the tomb. And you remember, we said last time, the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection is the key fact of all existence. There, the resurrection changes the way we talk. There were some on the road to Damascus who were walking, and there were two disciples They were walking on the road to Damascus. You can read it in Luke chapter 24 sometime. How they, and they were downcast, and Jesus even appeared to them, but they didn't know it. Their eyes were shut. Their eyes were holding that they didn't know who he was. And, and Jesus appeared to them and asked them a question. Why are, you, why are you talking together and you're so sad? Why are you walking with your countenance downcast like this? They said, hadn't you heard what all's happened? <laughs> oh, they were talking about the death of Jesus. They were talking about what a prophet he was. These are those that had already said he's the son of God. And now they're saying, oh, he's just a prophet. We thought he was going to be the one. We just... And now they're telling us these strange tales. about. They, they mentioned in their, in their talk that they'd heard from Mary and some of the others that they went to the tomb and he was gone. And, and of course, they, they, were just, they were just downcast. All they could think about it was in, in, in natural terms. And we've said last time, the resurrection is scientifically impossible, but it is historically true. <laughs> you see, God is the God of science. <laughs> he's the God over science, just like he's the God over all. And you know what happened? When they, as he began to expound to them the scriptures, he began to talk to them about the scriptures, suddenly their, their conversation changed. Their, their outlook changed. They said, man, don't leave us. Come eat with us. And he began to eat with them. And while they were eating with him, their eyes were opened. And they realized it was the very Jesus Christ that they had been walking with. He had indeed been resurrected, just like he said. And then their, their hearts were a little bit different. Their hearts were downcast. Their hearts were sad. And then they said, didn't our hearts burn within us when he was talking to us? Their conversation changed. They went back and told the other disciples. The resurrection changes everything. <clears throat> Over in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, Paul makes probably the best discourse we can read about the resurrection. And he starts it off this way. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. That is the good news. So he's got a good message. He's got some good news to tell them. What is the good news all about? Well, he said, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. Now, 
let me stop you right there and say this. Remember, when we see the word saved, we always have to ask the question, saved from what? Saved from what? Uh, Romans chapter 10 talks about some, some Jews over there who needed to be saved from the idea that they had to work their way to heaven. He said, I bear them record. They have a zeal of God. You don't have, you know, we read about some, some, some listeners over there on the day of Pentecost who were pricked in the heart. They were pricked in the heart. They weren't, there were some others over in the seventh chapter of Acts that were cut to the heart. I can cut men to the heart with my preaching, but only God can prick a man in the heart. And when, when you're pricked in the heart, there's a little different reaction. The, the ones in the day of Pentecost said, men and brethren, what should we do? Paul, uh, Peter said, repent and be baptized. That's what you ought to do. When you've been pricked in the heart, there's a response that God requires of you. Not everybody does it, but you ought to do it. And you ought to repent and be baptized. But you've already been pricked in the heart or you wouldn't have the desire to do that. Those that were cut to the heart did something else. They gnashed upon Stephen with their teeth. And ultimately stoned him to death. I can cut you to the heart, but only God can prick you in the heart. But notice he said, by which you're saved. Saved from what? The same thing those Jews needed to be saved from over there. From dead works. Saved from trying to work their way to heaven by keeping the law, by being circumcised. The same thing that those uh, believers needed to be saved from in Acts chapter 15. When they came down, those Judaizing missionaries came down and said, the only way you can really be a child of God is to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. And Peter said, don't be putting a burden on them. Don't put a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear we can't bear it you can't bear it if nothing else look at your own experience and I mean be honest about it don't look at the veneer you put over it for everybody else you know as far as everybody else is concerned I'm a pretty good guy <laughs> you know I try to be you know when I go out and meet new people I don't walk up to somebody and say let me tell you about what I did today you know I'm such a liar. I'm such a cheater. I'm, I, I have lustful thoughts. I have evil, wicked thoughts. You know, I'd like to stab you in the back if I could. You know, I don't go shaking somebody's hand and say, boy, I'd like to stab you in the back. I really would, you know. If it would help me, I'd do that. You know, that's the way I feel down deep in my heart, right? That you're a sinner. If you're honest about it, all you really care about is you. <laughs> that's all you care about in your flesh. You may do things that help others, but it's to really to help you. Now, I'm talking about apart from the Spirit here. I'm talking about apart from God. I know me. Every good thing I do is tainted with evil, wicked motives. I like for people to think I'm a good guy, but if you'll be honest about it, like I try to be honest about it with myself, I know I'm not a good guy. I know in my flesh, like the Apostle Paul said, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. <laughs> Therefore, the will is present with me. I want to do good. I want to do better, but I just can't do it. I can do good things, but I just can't get my mind to work right, Brother Mackey. I just can't get it in order to where I need to be. I still have these desires. I still have these thoughts. I still have these improper motives. I just can't get it right. If you be honest with it yourself, you can't either. And that's the problem with any system of works. That's the problem. The legalist, you know what? The legalist hides it by becoming self-righteous. The other side, you know the problem with the works-based salvation? You're either going to become a legalist and self-righteous or you're going to just completely quit church and quit working, to, trying to do anything to, to serve the Lord. You say, I'm just too terrible. I might as well just go on and live out over here because I'm going to hell, clearly. 
I mean, I, again, I tell you, one of the clearest signs you're not going to hell is that you're worried about going to hell, okay? Now, now there's more to it than that, but I'm just saying, I'm just saying that's one of the clearest indications. You say, oh, I feel like I'm too condemned a sinner to even have any hope of heaven. Well, praise God you feel that way. That's the clearest, that's the clearest sign I know of that you're one of those on the way to heaven. <laughs> but you see, you'll either end up with a self-righteous, like a self-righteous Pharisee, or you end up in the gutter, hopeless and in despair. But praise God, there's a middle ground. The middle ground is right here where, where it said, if you'll, if you'll believe this, if you'll understand this good news and you will believe this good news, there's a middle ground, there's a better way. There's a better way. And it will save you. It will save you. Not, you know what I'm saying. Jesus Christ had to die to save his people for eternity. But in this life, his people can save themselves from this crooked generation by trusting what Jesus has already done to save us eternally. He said, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That's a big deal. because We do believe he was the Son of God, but now, in another sense, it's not that big a deal because men have been dying since Adam. And so if, if all Christ did was come down here and died, I mean... You know, kudos to him for trying, but, but that's, that's just nothing unusual about that, right? It's just like over there in the, uh, when it talks about in Isaiah that a virgin shall conceive and have a son, okay? Uh, that was going to be a sign. That was a sign to them in that day, and it was a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. So a virgin shall conceive, <laughs> a virgin shall conceive and have a son, you know, if, if they want to change, change that translation to mean young woman nowadays. You know, young woman shall conceive and bear a son. What kind of sign is that? That happens all the time. <laughs> that happens all the time. But what doesn't happen is, is, is a virgin conceive and have a, have a child. And, 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 that, and that's what happened in the case of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was not, he had no earthly father. He had, a, he had an earthly mother, but no earthly father. And that's something different than has ever happened before. Up to this point, Christ died. That's happened all the time. But listen to this. Here's the good news. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So, so there's something different about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We say, what about Lazarus? Wasn't he resurrected? No, Lazarus was raised from the dead. <laughs> but he was raised by someone else, and he was raised to the same body he had before. The Lord Jesus Christ is the, is the first one to be resurrected. Resurrection is something different than just being revived or resuscitated or raised from the dead. Lazarus had to die again. The Lord Jesus Christ was resurrected in a perfect body, in a glorified body. He is in that body today. He is seated at the right hand of the Father today. And because of his resurrection, we have hope of our own resurrection, as we're going to see from Paul. But notice what he begins to do here then. Remember, we said the resurrection changes everything, so maybe we ought to look at its validity. Maybe we ought to look at why we ought to believe it. What is there support? Is there some reason that we ought to believe that it's true? 
Well, Paul, uh, Paul here begins to tell us about that. He says he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And now notice in verse 5, and that he was seen, this is part of the good news, that he was seen of Cephas, that's, that's Simon, Peter. Then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. So, so what about this resurrection? Why should we believe it? Well, I mean, and understand, you understand what I'm saying. I know you can't believe it unless you've been born of the Spirit. That's a spiritual thing. But I'm talking to people who, you know, when, when God borns us of the Spirit, He doesn't take away our mind. And sometimes we, we, need to, we think about things, and sometimes we overthink things. <laughs> so so what, what is, you know, faith is not blind faith. There's, there's, he, he, show, he shows us some evidences, you see, of, 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 that, that, to base our faith upon. So what, let's talk about some of the, evidences of the resurrection well first of all there were too many witnesses for it not to be true there were too many witnesses he just read to us some of these that's a good summary here down verses one through seven here of the witnesses to his resurrection now i'm gonna i'm not gonna go to all these places we don't have time but i wrote down a few other places i think this is a hopefully a comprehensive list of all the places where Jesus appeared in bodily form to somebody. If you're a note taker, you can write these notes down. I'll try not to go too fast, but, uh, but if, you, if, you, if I do, you see me afterwards and I'll, I'll share the list with you. In Matthew, the 28th chapter, the first 10 verses, verses 1 through 10, uh, he appeared to the women who went to the empty tomb. Here in Mark, the, the 16th chapter, in verses 9 through 11, and also over in John, the 20th chapter, and beginning in verse 10, down through about verse 18, he appeared to Mary Magdalene. Over in Luke, the 24th chapter and the 34th verse, we're told that he appeared to Peter or Cephas. And here we also see it in 1 Corinthians 15, 5. He, he was seen of Cephas, then of the 12. In John, the 20th chapter, verses 19 through 23, he appeared to the disciples without Thomas being there. You remember that story. Thomas wasn't there. Thomas, who said, I'm not going to believe it till I can touch him and I can put my fingers in his scars, you know. And we, we're, not, we're going to talk about that in a minute, but you'll, you know the outcome of that because in John chapter 20 and verses 26 through 28, and also Luke 24, beginning at verse 36, and Mark 16 and verses 14 through 18, he appeared to the disciples with Thomas there. And Thomas changed his tune, by the way. <laughs> Over in John 21, the 21st chapter of John, the first 14 verses, he appeared to seven of the disciples while they were fishing. In Matthew chapter 28, in verse 16 through 20, and also here in Mark, the 16th chapter, in the 14th through the 18th verses, he appeared to the apostles on a mountain. According to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 7, we read, it's the only place we really read about this, but he says, after that, he was seen of James. James. I'm not sure which James. Uh, the tradition tells us it was James, uh, the brother, uh, James, his, his brother. But he appeared to one of the Jameses, 1 Corinthians 15, 7. Then Luke chapter 24, in verses 50 through 52, and also in the first chapter of Acts, 
And also in Mark, by the way, the 19th verse of the 16th chapter down there, uh, Mark 16, 19, he appeared to the apostles on the Mount of Olives. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 6, we just read, he appeared to over 500 brethren at once. Over 500 people saw him at one time. And then ultimately, finally, you can read about it in 1 Corinthians, but the primary place is Acts, the ninth chapter. He appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus. He appeared to him, and you know the, the outcome there is Saul eventually changed his name to Paul. And Paul is doing the writing here. And he talks about that. He said, I was seen, last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. In other words, mine was a little different than the rest. It was after he had ascended back, but he came back down to appear to him. Now, I'm just lawyer enough to believe that witnesses make the case. <laughs> I heard, you know, I've tried many cases in my life and my career, and it took witnesses to try the case. Without witnesses, you don't have a case. When you've got a lot of witnesses, you've got a good case. And especially when those witnesses agree on the major details of what's going on. And here they agree on the details that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. There were too many witnesses, beloved, for it not to be true. There was also something else that I believe is strong evidence for the resurrection. There was too much persecution for it not to be true. Paul, Paul goes to this argument. The re between verses uh, 11 there and down to about verse uh, 30, Paul gets, gets on to the Corinthians. He says, y'all are taking the position that there is no resurrection. And he says this, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable. It's, that's a bad place to be, he's saying. You, you, you don't need to be taking this position. He said, there's some reasons you shouldn't take this position. I've already given you the witnesses that have seen him alive. And now in verse 30, he says, he said, look, you don't believe in the resurrection? Man, I'm telling you the resurrection is true. He said, why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantageth me it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, we might as well live our lives like the heathen do. Just do whatever feels good. Eat, drink, tomorrow we die. All we have is this life and nothing else. But he said, look at what I'm doing, first of all. Look at my persecutions look at what has happened to me i fought with beasts you think i would you think i would do that for a lie <laughs> you think i'd do that if i didn't believe in it you see look at the persecutions that occurred it's a very logical argument I, i'm not going to go there but in the fourth chapter of acts you'll read about the disciples peter and james and the others being put in jail okay in the fifth chapter of Acts, it escalates from being put in jail to being beaten. <laughs> and, and you know what they said about it? They said, we're rejoicing that we're counted worthy to be persecuted. You go from the fifth chapter of Acts to the seventh chapter of Acts, and you read about a man named Stephen who was willing to die for the cause of Christ. You go on over further to the twelfth chapter of Acts, and you read about Herod's persecution of the Christians and how that he slew James the brother of John. See, and, and you could go on and on and on. Paul, I mean, there's so many persecutions. All but one of the apostles died a martyr's death. 
All but one. John the ba- John, not John the Baptist, John the Apostle. John the Apostle was the only apostle who, according to history, lived out a natural lifespan. And we know where we read about him last, right? Is exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Even though he lived to a natural time of death, according to history, he was persecuted, he was scourged, he was beaten at times, and he was ultimately exiled to the Isle of Patmos, away from family and friends and church and everything. And that's where we see him right in the book of Revelation. You read about Fox's book of martyrs. You read about some of those, those uh, of our Baptist forefathers who even who were, who were put to death, who were persecuted and died. But in this day, you had all these that claimed to have seen Jesus, claimed to have seen him in the flesh, and they were willing to die for it. Would they die for a lie? I don't think so. You know, if it's a lie, I mean, I might try to maintain it for a while, but... But, you know, once I'm standing there tied up and they're getting ready to let the beasts out, I say, oh, wait a minute, y'all, I'm just kidding, okay? You know, I'm sorry, this has gone far enough, okay? Let's let's go back and we'll go worship uh, Caesar, okay? I'm I'm done, you know. But they didn't do that. They were willing to die. They They were willing to be eaten by beasts and to be slain in the circus Maximus there. Over in 2 Corinthians 11th chapter, listen to Paul. Paul just telling about his own persecutions. You know, Paul ultimately lost his life, too, as a martyr. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 24, he says, Of the Jews five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness, in painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside those things that are without that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Paul sure was a fool if he was preaching a lie. If he was standing for a lie. You know what he says back over in the fourth chapter? He says, I'll just turn there and read it. In the fourth chapter of 2 Corinthians, verse 16, For this cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I'm a baby when it comes to pain. You wouldn't have to peel but one of my fingernails off, and I'd be screaming like a baby, okay? I'd be, I'd, be ready to, I'd be ready to change something. I'd say, Look, what can I do to stop this? But you see, Paul calls that, that, that would not be light affliction to me. Paul calls all those things that I just read to you light affliction. How can he do that? How could he do that if the resurrection is a lie? And the answer is clear, he can't. But notice what he can do now because the resurrection is not a lie. He says, Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And he goes right on into verse 1 of chapter 5 saying, For we know. See, look, look where Paul's hope lay. It didn't lay in the philosophy of Jesus or the teachings of Jesus. It lay in the fact of the resurrection of Jesus. He says, for we know 
if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Why is that, Paul? Because you're such a good guy. So you work so hard? No. Paul said, I'm a wretched man. He calls himself the chief of sinners. You know what it took for Paul to have that hope? It took Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to die and to rise again. The resurrection changes everything. There was too much persecution for it not to be true. And then there was, this is something that is amazing to me to think about. Sometimes we don't think about this. There was too much transformation for the resurrection not to be true. Remember the disciples? Remember those fearful deserters? Remember those scared little cowards that ran away? These fearful deserters became faithful followers. The women at the tomb, now they didn't desert him. They were actually more faithful than the men, but they came there downcast. They left rejoicing. They left, as we said last time, amazed. The word ecstasy. They were in an ecstasy, a spiritual state that had lifted them out of the circumstances they were in. Remember the disciples on the road to Emmaus. They were downcast. They had ran away. You know, I'm sure Peter was thinking, man, even if he were alive, things would be so different because I deserted him. I denied him three times. But the disciples on the road to Emmaus changed their tune. They had a great conversion. Thomas, <laughs> Thomas, I'll not believe him till I stick my hand in his side and see the scar. When he finally appeared to Thomas, Thomas didn't have to touch anything. He just fell to his knees and said, my Lord and my God. <laughs> he, he believed when he saw him there was a transformation. Ignorant and unlearned men became eloquent orators. They began, became strong speakers uh, standing for the truth of the gospel. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 we read, they, these ignorant and unlearned men spake with boldness. These that had run from Jesus, these that had run from the Romans, had run and fled in the garden, they're now speaking boldly. They don't have a college education. They don't even have a high school degree. They're ignorant and unlearned. Not in a, that's not a negative connotation. They just don't know. They don't have the education. But yet they're preaching the truths of the gospel of the grace of God. We see them in the fifth chapter of Acts rejoicing that they were able to suffer persecution for the gospel's sake. Do you rejoice this morning when you're persecuted for Jesus? Sometimes I find myself slipping back into the old man and not wanting to stand out in the crowd, not wanting to be persecuted. But praise God, if you're persecuted, we ought to rejoice in that. <laughs> When we're persecuted, you're one of them old primitive Baptists. Praise God, I am. Do you not like that? Praise God. Don't be in your face. I don't mean that, but I'm just saying to you, don't let the persecution get you down because it caused them to rejoice. The disciples were transformed. And this is something even more glorious to me. Skeptics were converted. Skeptics were converted. Remember Thomas? We've already talked about him. I just won't believe it until I see it. He saw it and he was converted. The Apostle Paul, the greatest skeptic of all, he wasn't going to Damascus seeking Jesus. He was going to Damascus seeking followers of Jesus to have them murdered, to have them martyred for the cause of Christ. And he thought he was doing God a favor. And it was so bad that when he did convert, they weren't sure about him to start with. Ananias, who God appeared, had to appear to him and say, you take Paul in. He said, God, you know who this is, right? 
Read about it in the ninth chapter of Acts. You know he's the one that's been killing us. Yeah, he's a, he's a vessel for me, God said. He was converted to the cause of Christ. <laughs> Let me tell you, there's been some, there's been some examples of that. The, the, the resurrection changes everything, and it still changes things today. There's some modern examples, or more modern examples, of skeptics <laughs> who've been converted <laughs> to believers on Christ. A man named Sir William Ramsey, for example, he set out to disprove the historical accuracy of the Bible through archaeological work. And he ended up being one of its staunchest supporters, wrote a book about the historicity of the, of the Word of God. A man named Dr. Simon Greenleaf, <laughs> I like this one. <clears throat> He was one of the greatest legal minds who ever lived. He taught, he was a professor at Harvard University. He wrote a treatise on evidence that, that, that is still used today. And he decided he was going to set out to expose the myth of the resurrection once and for all. That was his goal. He ended up concluding that according to the legal evidence, the resurrection is the best supported event in all history. <laughs> what a conversion. But you know, my favorite conversion of all was an atheist named Clive Staples Lewis, who we know as C.S. Lewis today. He was born in 1898. He died in 1963. He was a scholar and author. He was the chair of medieval and renaissance English at Cambridge University. One of the, he, 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 he started out uh, uh, as, a, as an atheist. He was... Um, he, 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 did not, he, wasn't just, he didn't just fail to believe. He was an atheist. He did not believe at all. And he ended up being one of the most influential Christian writers of the 20th century. <clears throat> wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Wrote a book called Mere Christianity. He was called, uh, he was so influential in the realm of apologetics. Christian apologetics is just arguing for the, for the existence of Christ, arguing for the, uh, the truth of the gospel, based on extra-biblical, in other words, you're not, you may use the Bible, but an atheist that doesn't believe in the Bible, you can't go to him and say, well, John 3.16 says this, or Ephesians 1 and 4 says that. They don't, they don't accept that. But, but what, uh, uh, what Lewis did is he, he would go to philosophy, and he would go to history, and he would go outside of the Scripture, and he would compile strong... I, I want to tell you, there's strong evidence out there in archaeology. There's strong... I've, I've, I've been a student of history all my life. I've never found one fact of history that is, that's a true fact of history that has contradicted the Word of God. And he was, he was one of the greatest... Um, apologists for Christianity. He was called the apostle to the skeptics. <laughs> they called him the apostle to the skeptics. And he was able to deal with the issues like why is there pain? Why is there evil in the world? Oh, what a conversion. <laughs> what a conversion. You know what made the difference with him? The resurrection. The resurrection changes everything. You see, most religions are built on a set of teachings. The Buddhists base their religion on Buddha's teachings. You know, the Hindus base it on um, those ancient texts that, that, that are their founding documents. Um, uh, even, the, even the Muslims base their religion on the teachings of Muhammad. Most religions base, are based on the teachings of their founder. 
Christianity, our religion, is based on the resurrection of our founder, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you this morning as we bring this to a close, beloved, the truth of the resurrection ought still to be changing our lives. The truth of the resurrection ought to be just as relevant today as if it had happened yesterday. You know, over in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter again, where Paul is going down through there, he, he keeps on talking about the resurrection and how that's the central tenet of his beliefs and that's the one thing that changes his life. And he goes down in verse uh, 32 and through 34 and he basically says, you know, I've, I've, been, I've, been, I've been fighting against beasts. And then he says in verse 33, I, he said, I've been persecuted. Verse 33, he said, don't be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. In other words, he's saying don't hang out with people that are going to pull you down. He's saying uh, evil communications. In other words, if you're hanging out all the time with college professors who run down uh, the word of God, you're going to, by natural, just as a process of nature, you're going to end up questioning. You're going to end up getting worse and worse. I'm not saying never deal with them. Sometimes you have to deal with them, but don't surrender yourself with those people in your in your circle of influence that are going to corrupt your good manners that are going to mess your mind up in other words he says some don't have the knowledge of God don't hang out with those because you're not going to find hope there you're not going to find help there he says I speak this to your shame and he says some men will say how are the dead raised up with what body do they come they question the resurrection he goes on for the next few verses down to about verse 49 to describe for them the, he, said, don't, he says don't let the scientific naysayers throw you off there is a science if you will to the resurrection you plant corn in the ground as a seed it doesn't come up as a seed it comes up as a plant something changes about it you plant a small seed it becomes a glorious plant you, 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 you there's some science to it but remember the God of science who is above all science is the God of the resurrection he says if you have to get lost get lost in the glory of the resurrection look at verse 50 I say this now this I say brethren that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God neither doth corruption inherit incorruption Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. He's already told us back in verse, uh, uh, back in, uh, uh, verse 20, he says that Christ is risen from the dead and he's the first fruits of them that sleep. In other words, when you die because Jesus was resurrected, you can have hope that you will be resurrected. And when that day comes, it's going to be glorious and we're going to be changed for this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass a saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? I will be so glad when that day comes because I'm stinging today because of death. Today on Father's Day, I miss my father. I think 
think about the day he passed from this life. I've thought about him and it stings, beloved. If you've lost a loved one recently or ever in your life, you know it stings. But beloved, the grave will lose its sting. Death will lose its sting at the resurrection. It's only by the hope of the resurrection that we can, we can lose the sting of death. That we can realize in this life we're going to experience it. But the resurrection is going to overcome it. The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, praise God for the resurrection. It changes everything. I got up this morning thinking about dad. Weeping about him. Still sorrowful about it. But I'm not sorrowing like those that don't have hope. I know I will see him again. Not because he was so good or not because I'm so great, but because Jesus Christ went into the grave. He conquered death, hell, and the grave, and he was resurrected. Lately, when I face troubles, you say, well, how does, I know it helps you with death. What if, listen, last night, <laughs> last night, Mason had a problem with his car late. It had to do with water and gas and everything else. We'll talk about that later. But anyway, it was, it was uh, I had to get up. We had to go over there. And I was, could have done this different, could have done that different. We should be doing this. I left my, I left my gas can at home. And, all, and then, I, then it hit me what I was going to preach on today, Brother Mackey. I'm headed over through Coker, and I'm, I'm, I'm about to have to stop and see if they got a gas can, because it might be the gas. It might be a problem that he's out of gas, but it might be something else. So I'm going to go over there, and I'm going to see. But I'm mad about it. I'm upset about it. It's bothering me, because I want to be in the bed. I'm tired, and I've been gone. And here I go over to this, and I'm thinking, but what if Jesus comes back right now? <laughs> what if he comes back before I get to there, where I have to figure out if they have a gas can, or if I have to, or if I have to jump the car off, or what's happening? What if if the Lord comes back and we never make it home, praise God, we'll be in our eternal home. Sure changed my outlook. <laughs> Convicted me. It ought to make a difference in our lives. The resurrection changes everything. Maybe, maybe you've been cowardly like the disciples. Maybe you've been unfaithful like Peter or David or any others we could name. Look at their transformation, though. You know what the resurrection does? It brings us hope, not just of eternity, but in this life, that there's something better. You know why I come to church on Sunday morning? Because it makes me feel better. And it's not just about feelings. I don't mean that. But in my spirit, it rejuvenates me. I'm not finding that in the world. I had a, Somebody said something, I think Brother James and I were talking about what kind of a week it was. He said, it was a week. And I said that, too. It sure was a week. <laughs> I didn't find there what I'm finding here. I had several trips I had to make, and I met some good friends, and I made some new friends, and it was good to be with people, but I did not find in Ozark, Alabama, or Destin, Florida, or Dothan, Alabama, what I found here at Zion Church this morning, which is hope, help for me. It's the same kind of hope that C.S. Lewis wrote about in the Chronicles of Narnia. If you've never read those books, I encourage you to read them, even if you're an adult. They're kids' books. They're geared towards young folks. But man, they're good. It's a fictional account about a, a land where animals speak and, and 
and their kings and their wars and their battles. It's, it's really some good, it's good books. But in that series, there's a lion named Aslan. And that lion, Aslan, is, represents Christ. He, he's, he's, he's the Christ, if you will, of the Chronicles of Narnia. So many parallels there. We don't have time to get into them. But I, I don't want to spoil it for you, but I'm going to this morning. This is going to be a spoiler alert, okay? In the last book of the seven books in the Chronicles of Narnia, it's a book called The Last Battle. At the end of the book, they come to a point where they fought, they've been persecuted, and they finally are in a place of great beauty, great joy. They're beginning to see people they hadn't seen in generations. They're beginning to see people that have been long dead and animals that were their friends. And it tells us, he ends the book in the series this way. <clears throat> One of the characters is a young girl named Lucy. It says, the light ahead was growing stronger. Lucy saw that a great series of many-colored cliffs led up in front of them like a giant staircase. And then she forgot everything else because Aslan himself was coming, leaping down from cliff to cliff like a living cataract of power and beauty. He, he turned to them and said, you do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. And Lucy said, we're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan, as you have sent us back to our own world so often. He says, no fear of that. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leaped and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and your mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. But, now listen to this. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. And thus ended the Chronicles of Narnia, but thus began to these characters the greatest story ever told. You know, that's a fictional account. But the reason I like it so much is it's based on a true account. One day, maybe today, I hope today, that trump will sound, the skies will open, and the Lord will come back in his resurrected body to take us home to be with him in our resurrected bodies. And that, beloved, is the ending, but really the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I'm so thankful he told us about it in this book of Mark because that's something that ought to affect us every day. The resurrection changes everything.
It ought to change our lives. I hope it changes your life today. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.